Good morning. Yeah, it's a joy to be again with you. Thank you for having me here for the third time. Man, you like to suffer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity of once again gathering uh, in your presence and be blessed by your presence and by your word, the power of your spirit through your word today. And we pray that that power will, will come through despite my weaknesses, despite our all's weaknesses. We pray that you will bless us and that you'll transform us individually and, and as a church to transform also the Wheaton area. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What comes to mind when you think about revival? Some may think of a charismatic neo-Pentecostal megachurch promoting their next sermon series. Others of the older type may imagine a tent meeting hosted by a famous evangelist throughout the week. Some get excited with the idea, others scared. Whatever the case, we must acknowledge that throughout the book of Acts, we see glimpses of and examples of revival. Also, world history has witnessed several revivals, not least here in the U.S. through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. One author notes that the result of a genuine revival, according to Edwards, is that everyone seemed more focused on eternity. Many new converts professed faith in Christ. The town exhibited better morals, and church members showed higher regard for scripture. This author then continues that during a visit to Connecticut in July 8, 1741, Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Due to screaming and other emotional displays from the congregation, Edwards could not even finish the sermon with an appeal to accept God's grace. Others say that people hold fast to their pews for fear, for fear of falling into hell because of their sin. But still, what then is genuine revival? What or how much, if anything, of what happened in Acts can we expect to happen today? in 21st century Chicago suburbs. There's a lot in the book of Acts that is unique and unrepeatable, but there are patterns, repetitions, by which Luke highlights things for us even today. And in this passage, I believe we see a genuine revival. 
aspects of which Luke is encouraging us to expect and desire a genuine revival, at least in, at least in this passage, is the genuine power of God that produces genuine transformation. Again, a genuine revival is the genuine power of God that produces genuine transformation. Look first at God's power and how he displays this power through Paul, verses 11 and 12, if you are following with me. And God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul, or literally by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, let, let's not get sidetracked with or by handkerchiefs and aprons just yet. Luke highlights clearly that God is the one performing these powers, these miracles. Indeed, these are extraordinary miracles made by God through Paul's hands. Literally, God was doing no ordinary miracles. No ordinary miracles. I, lo I love how Luke seems to categorize them, right? It's like there are miracles, and then there are no ordinary miracles. But there's a reason why Luke highlights or emphasizes God's e extraordinary powers through Paul. Luke wants to demonstrate that Paul's teaching is in fact God approved. In verses 8 and 10 in the previous passage, Luke tells us that Paul had been persuading and teaching the disciples in Ephesus for over two years. So that, verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word. So just as with Jesus, God is attesting Paul's teaching through these powerful acts. Jesus' own preaching was attested by God through powers and miracles. Luke in his gospel tells us how Jesus was teaching them and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And immediately Luke writes about Jesus rebuking an unclean spirit. And they were all amazed, says Luke, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Jesus' word, Jesus' teaching was attested by miracles and so is Paul's teaching but Felipe again what about handkerchiefs and aprons you might remember that that, that woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years do you remember how she was healed she said if I touch even his garments I will be made well. 
and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So now, through handkerchiefs and aprons, God is doing with Paul what Jesus did with his garments. By comparing Paul with Jesus, Paul wants us to know that this is the genuine power of God working through Paul. It's not about handkerchiefs. It's about God's genuine power attested in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. In fact, in this COVID age, I would not recommend receiving handkerchiefs from anyone, no matter how powerful they, say, they may seem. But Luke does not stop there. He, he, he not only compares Paul with Jesus, he also contrasts God's genuine power with the ungenuine power of some itinerant exorcists who tried to cast out evil spirits. Look at verses 13 to 16. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook or attempted to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven, sorry, I was still quoting. Seven sons of, of, of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mustered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Picture the scene. A bit of tragic comedy. They intended to invoke Jesus' power and ended up running naked and wounded. In fact, this one man overpowered seven men. Rather than manifesting the power of the Lord over him, the evil spirit mastered, lordered over them. Magic spells were very popular in Ephesus at that time. This is also clear by the number, of, and the number and value of magic books that were burned, as we will see later in this passage. A commentator notes that, notes that for the Ephesians, the incantation of a formula that includes a name was regarded as having the power to drive out evil spirits from people. These sons of Siva saw how Paul, in the name of Jesus, had casted out demons and thought, well, we'll try that next time. But little did they know. Sadly, these sons of Siva were, are not just from Ephesus. They were Jewish exorcists using 
pagan magic, which reflects the syncretism pervasive at that time. They thought that they could merely use Jesus' name without knowing him. They thought they could merely lord over Jesus' power, but they were the ones overpowered. Now listen, church. God's genuine power is not a matter of magic or spells. God's power is not something that we can that can be mimicked or bought. We cannot control or manipulate God's power. It's the contrary. Jesus' name must be honored, must be worshipped. We might not resort to magic or magic spells today, but we disregard God's power in many ways. Some may believe that because they come to church, they place their offerings, they participate in Christian communities, Sunday schools, then God will bless them will make them prosper. That if they repeat prayers or simply declare what they want in the name of Jesus, then God will magically answer. But God's power cannot be manipulated. Jesus' name must not be taken in vain. So prayer it's not a spell by which we obtain what we want, no. Prayer is the way we make evident our complete dependence on God's power. We don't need Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons today. God is still powerfully active in our lives and in our church. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're not using a magical spell or incantation. Rather, we pray with Jesus as our only mediator. We enjoy confidently the genuine power of God in our lives despite our weaknesses. We pray, and we pray for the sick and the needy precisely because we are completely dependent on God's genuine power. And we are convinced that nothing else but prayer will do. So genuine power that produces genuine transformation. Genuine power leads to and produces genuine citywide transformation. Luke portrays this transformation in terms of awe or fear and genuine conversion. Look first at, at the fear that fell upon them all. Verse 17. And this, this, this failed ex exorcism, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Again, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, magnified. 
even though the sons of Siva misused his name, Jesus was still worshipped and honored. I cannot but think of the cross, the one place where Jesus was put to shame and exalted at the same time. The good news is that despite taking his name in vain, we are not overpowered because Jesus overcomes evil. God brings victory over darkness and powerfully overcomes sin. Now that's good news. That is the gospel. We should then fear the name of the Lord, magnify Jesus in our everyday lives. And the city of Ephesus were doing so. Apart, for, apart from fear and worship, the genuine power of God leads to and produces genuine conversion. Did you see that? Verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and, divul and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 drachmas. Fear and worship along with confession and repentance. That is genuine transformation. They did not just confess their practices, but went as far as burning what was fueling those practices. I have no idea how much 50,000 drachmas is. I, I can barely convert Chilean pesos to US dollars. But it sure sounds a lot. In any case, this transformation is from the inside out. Did you notice that? Inward, heartful awe of God and confession is evidenced by outward actions and behaviors. Not the other way around. Are we seeking inward genuine transformation? Or are we content with merely appearing transformed? During the Reformation in Geneva, before the arrival of John Calvin, many took over the city and started destroying and burning images and statues, thus desecrating Catholic properties. Protestant mobs, writes an author, with hammers and axes attacked a convent, destroying books and statues. But William Farrell, the reformationist leader, quickly discovered that it was one thing to demolish the existing religious order and quite another to construct a new one in its place. Calvin later recalled, 
When I first arrived, there was almost nothing. They were very good at seeking out idols and burning them. But there was no reformation. External actions do not produce internal change. It was not until faithful, systematic preaching, pastoral training, and the establishment of new churches that Reformation and genuine revival came to Geneva. Scott Manich wrote, for Calvin, the essential difference between true and false worship was that whereas spiritual worship is prompted by the Holy Spirit, engages the inner life of faith, is subject to the divine word and leads to God's glory, false worship springs from the flesh, is concerned with external righteousness, violates God's commands, and is thoroughly idolatrous. The distraction of idols does not produce reformation or revival. But genuine revival produces genuine inward transformation that is evidenced in outward morals and behavior. Note the implicit contrast between these valuable books and Paul's teaching. They are now listening and obeying God's word rather than magic books. Note also that genuine note, note, note also that how genuine transformation in turn produces genuine gospel growth. Genuine gospel growth, verse 20. So, in, in this way, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is where Luke is taking us. If you have been attentive to this whole series of acts, you would have known how Luke once again is drawing attention to the growth of God's word. Despite apparent fraudulent and demonic activity, God's word continues to increase. A few times throughout Acts, we hear this refrain, Acts 6, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And again, Acts 12. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Lastly, here, the same melody is played. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The narrator is not simply glorifying Paul. It is finally the power of the word of the Lord or the name of the Lord that stands behind these events. This is genuine revival. The genuine power of God 
and his word faithfully proclaimed, producing genuine inward transformation that is evidenced in outward actions that leads to more gospel growth and the increase of God's word and power that will again produce genuine transformation and so on. J.I. Packer refers to this as a recurring feature of revival. He says, as God uses his word to quicken consciences, the perverseness, ugliness, uncleanness, and guilt of sin are seen and felt with new clarity. And the depth of each person's sinfulness is realized as never before. Believers are deeply humbled. Unbelievers are made to feel that living as they do with sin and without God is intolerable, intolerable, sorry. And the forgiveness of sins becomes the most precious truth in the creed. Finally, this transformation is not only in isolated individuals. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, verse 10. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Greeks and Jews, and fear fell upon them all. Verse 17. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 20. This was a citywide transformation. Back in the first awakening, in 1739, George Whitfield visited Philadelphia and preached outdoors to thousands of people. Even Benjamin Franklin couldn't deny the evidence of revival that accompanied Whitfield's visit. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in manners, in the manners of our inhabitants, from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion or devotion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sang. It got too hot. <laughs> without seeing psalms sang throughout the cities and the townships. This is genuine revival. Again, that through God's power, through God's spirit in his word, we are convinced that we need God's grace. And we repent, confess our sins, and transform our lives, not just individually, but as a whole church. Now imagine your life. Imagine this church, how genuine revival here would influence the Chicago suburbs, how much our families,
colleagues and friends will be impacted by the display of God's power in our lives today.